Thank you very much. Wonderful music to get us started. Let's thank him again. Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and the moderator of today's forum with Dr. Jeffrey Sachs. I'd like to welcome the members of the Harvard Club who are here in our audience. Dr. Sachs earned his undergraduate and graduate degrees at Harvard and served on its faculty for 20 years. He's currently on the faculty at Columbia. We won't hold that against him. And alumni from that university, I understand, are here as well. Would all of you who are alums either of Harvard or of Columbia give a little signal here so Dr. Sachs can get a sense of, all right, there you go. Yeah, they're here, good. Thank you for coming. The Town Hall Forum's long tradition of offering programs that are free and open to the public is made possible by the generosity of our donors. Nearly 90% of our funding comes from individuals like yourselves. Our donors' names are listed in the program today. Many of you are in the audience, and we are grateful to you for making this happen. If you'd like to support the forum, we invite you to pick up a donor envelope as you exit the doors on the tables, mail your donation to us, drop it in the basket there. Any way you want to get it to us is fine. We're happy to receive it. And while you're at those tables, you might sign up to receive our brochures and email alerts. When you entered today, you should have received a yellow index card. That's for you to record a question for Dr. Sachs. The ushers will collect those at the end of his opening presentation and then bring them forward, and I will present as many of them as we can to Dr. Sachs. The forum is pleased to partner today with the news and information stations of Minnesota Public Radio because this is Pledge Week at NPR, and those of you who are listening to NPR certainly know it's Pledge Week at NPR. <laughs> uh, we're recording today's forum. It will be broadcast, so they say as of this morning, broadcast Monday at noon on the 24th, just a few days from now. And when I receive their signal to begin the forum, I will introduce you to the, and the radio audience to Dr. Sachs, and we'll get started. Uh, Dr. Sachs will speak for about 25 minutes. This is our format. At the conclusion of his presentation, then I will reintroduce the forum to the listening audience. The ushers will collect your questions, and then if you need to leave early, that's a good time to slip out, and then we proceed with the question and answer period. It's now that time when I ask everybody who has a cell phone or some other thing that might make noise, please, to take a moment and turn it off. That includes me. Following today's presentation, you're invited to join us for a light lunch in our great hall that's out the doors to your left or to your right. For those attending the Harvard Club Buffet lunch after the presentation, that's in the Bushnell room, which is out the doors to the left and all the way to the other end of the building. Copies of our speaker's new book, The Price of Civilization, can be purchased from Majors and Quinn booksellers in the Cloister Hall down the way to your left, and Dr. Sachs will be available for signing those books. If you'd like to continue the conversation that starts today in the forum, a small group will be discussing the topic in the Bates Room out to the left here, facilitated by Hector Garcia from the Minnesota International Center. Minnesota International Center is one of our longtime partners at the Town Hall Forum, and their Great Decisions Conference is coming up this, later this month on Saturday the 29th, and I encourage you to go to their website, micglobe.org, for more information about that. And finally, as we conclude the forum today, I'll ask that you pick up things in the pews and make sure you don't leave anything behind so that uh, we'll have a clean sanctuary uh, to go forward with other things we do in this room. Thank you for being here. In a moment, we will begin our radio broadcast.
Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 31 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues, and ethical perspective. Learn more about the forum online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Jeffrey Sachs is director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University and special advisor to Secretary General Ban Ki-moon of the United Nations Millennium Development Goals. Dr. Sachs is considered one of the leading economists in the world today. He's recognized for his contributions to solving the most challenging economic and social crises in countries around the globe, from Latin America to Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union to India, China, and most recently, Sub-Saharan Africa. In his new book, which is on the topic of today's forum, The Price of Civilization, Reawakening American Virtue and Prosperity, he turns his attention to our own economy and the challenges that the American people face as we seek to restore civic virtue and social responsibility as a way to create a sustained economic recovery. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, economist Jeffrey Sachs. Thank you. Thank you very much. What an honor it is for me to be at the Westminster Town Hall Forum, uh, this great gathering in this absolutely magnificent venue. And I'm also delighted to be in Minneapolis uh, and in this region of the country, which has given so much to the United States in uh, the sense of uh, decency and progressive thinking. And I hope that my talk will encourage you to do more uh, and uh, make sure that we don't have backsliding, as we see uh, in your next-door neighbor state, uh, another state of uh, traditional progressive leadership, but Wisconsin's going seriously backward right now. Uh, and I want us to help them get right again. Uh, in general, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a big believer in high latitudes. Uh, because uh, when you uh, look in my book, uh, I make a major point of emphasis on the strong performance of the Scandinavian countries, uh, which uh, have given so much to this region as well, uh, to the outstanding performance of countries like Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, uh, also to the Netherlands and Germany. In many, many respects, these countries have a performance uh, in their economy, in society, and in environment which uh, absolutely gives an important message for the rest of the world. And that is that it is possible to have a humane market economy. It's possible to combine efficiency and prosperity with social justice. It's possible to combine a market system and international trade with low levels of poverty, high gender equality, help for young children, and attention to the physical environment. And the Northern European countries have done all of this and shown us the kind of balance that I think is the essence of what we need in this world 
and what we've lost in the United States and what we need to regain. <clears throat> we don't need theories, we just need our eyes open. And we need to look at what works and what doesn't work. And we need to understand why in this country we are on the wrong track, something that 80% of Americans or more agree with uh, in opinion survey after opinion survey. And we have to understand also something very, very important. It's really true, it's not just a pandering statement. There's nothing wrong with American values. What is wrong is with the translation of those values to policy because it's Washington that's broken. And we have to understand why it is that Washington is broken right now. And the basic reason Washington is broken is that our political system is corrupt. It's been taken over by money. It's been taken over by powerful interests. It's been taken over by David Koch, who owns too many politicians, who funds what's going on next door in Wisconsin, who is making a mess of this country uh, because uh, he inherited a vast fortune from his father. Uh, he turns one of the most polluting industries into corporate propaganda, and we've got a problem, ladies and gentlemen, and we have to speak frankly about it. If I sound a little bit alarmed, it is because I am alarmed. And I'm alarmed that we have allowed this kind of corporate propaganda to go on unchallenged year after year. And what we see is a society that is absolutely at the hands of powerful interests that have lost the tethering of morality, even legality. This week we had yet another Wall Street bank this time Citigroup, pay a $285 million fine to the Securities and Exchange Commission for financial fraud. Fraud, ladies and gentlemen. What did they do? They got together with a hedge fund. They designed a derivative instrument designed to fail. The hedge fund bet against that instrument sold it short, in essence, while Citigroup peddled it to so-called customers who used to be able to believe in their financial institutions. And of course, credit itself comes from the Latin for to believe, for trust. But in fact, this instrument was designed to fail. Fail it did. The hedge fund made a tremendous amount of money. The buyer lost all the money. Citigroup took home huge fees. And this is considered modern banking, Wall Street style. And this would be bad enough if it were just one institution, but this is three in a row now, just in recent months. Goldman Sachs paid $560 million for exactly this kind of fraud, teamed up with John Paulson, the hedge fund fellow you may have heard of, who took home a paycheck of $5 billion, as if that's normal also. That's enough for 100,000 jobs at $50,000 income, but it went to one person, not to 100,000 workers. And what did they do? They did the same thing. They packaged a fraudulent security. Goldman sold it to German state banks. The Germans lost their money. Goldman said, well, this is a tough business. Buyers have to beware. 
of the very ones that they were peddling it to. Goldman ended up paying $560 million in fines, and John Paulson was quoted in the newspaper so absurdly that I don't know whether it's a real quote, saying, why are people upset with me? I've created 100 high-paying jobs in New York. <laughs> Honestly, it's there in the newspaper, in our paper of record in the New York Times. I scratched my head. I said, this must be a misquote. But apparently, it hasn't been corrected or, uh, or, uh, or rejected by Mr. Paulson. It's just absurd. And of course, J.P. Morgan was the third one that did this. They got together with another hedge fund, Magnetar. They designed another toxic asset back in 2007. Same story, $153 million of fines. Every marquee company on Wall Street, Goldman, Citigroup, JP Morgan, AIG, Merrill Lynch, Countrywide Financial, and the list goes on, breaking the law one after another as if this is a normal way to do business. Then the market collapses. Then all of a sudden they turn around, as does the so-called free market Wall Street Journal, and says, oh, don't you know about market failures? We need to bail th these guys out. And bail them out we did, not only with the TARP, $700 billion, but with zero interest loans from the Fed, the friendly Fed who gave zero interest loans so that these banks could make enormous profits on trades. Did you get zero interest loans from the Fed, by the way? I didn't. Oh, that's right, we're not investment banks. Uh, we don't have that privilege. So they turned around and then they paid themselves huge bonuses again. And they said, what's your problem? We don't get it. Why are you complaining? And they stayed as CEOs, and they're invited to state dinners at the White House, and they're the bundlers of large campaign contributions for the major candidates right now. And we call this democracy. And we even think this is normal. And then when our kids go out and say, something's not right about this America that we're coming into right now, and they occupy Wall Street, and they occupy the Fed parks around this country. <laughs> then we have people like Eric Cantor call them a mob. He should be ashamed of himself. He really should be ashamed, as should all these other politicians who are so corrupted by the money they take from these big interests that they'll say anything and do anything to protect these powerful interests right now. And that's the problem in our country, which is we do not have a connection right now between American values, which still have plenty of compassion in them and plenty of common sense in them, and what's going on in Washington. In a quite literal sense, we have a break between what the American people want and what's being delivered. When I was writing The Price of Civilization, I read dozens, maybe even hundreds, of detailed opinion surveys, because I got everything that I could find from 
Gallup and Rasmussen and Pew and from many other surveys. And I was fascinated to be reacquainted with the more detailed views of Americans because I wasn't quite aware of how the mainstream majority American views are so decent. I should have guessed and would have guessed that, but so different from what's going on in this country. Americans have wanted three things in recent years. First, they've wanted the rich to pay more in taxes. And this is hidden from view because sometimes the statement in these surveys is, do you want to pay more in taxes? No. Should taxes be raised in general? Not exactly. But would you like the rich who have escaped the burden and have had the hugest, biggest gains in modern history to do more? Yes, thank you very much, please. Which is absolutely right. So when you get the question asked in the right way, you get the answer in a quite sensible way. Second, do you want your social programs and the role of government to be cut? Well, no thank you. We'd actually like our social security. We paid into it for decades. We would like our Medicare. We would like public education. We do not side with Ron Paul, who wants to close down the Department of Education, the Department of Energy, the Department of Environment, because we'd actually like to live in a country with knowledgeable people and a safe physical environment, thank you, and a safe energy system, not what we have. So the American people are very clear on this as well. And the third thing the American people are extremely clear about is end the wars. This is... <laughs> we have been 10 years in Afghanistan, not surprisingly in my view, to no avail. This has been a useless, wasteful, bloody, costly period for this country. We're spending trillions of dollars we need back home to rebuild our schools, to train our children, to help them have a safe environment. And we're squandering it, killing people in places we don't have any understanding about, led by generals who know a lot about dropping bombs and sending drone missiles, that's their job, but who understand nothing about Afghanistan and who have no right or responsibility to be determining foreign policy and yet are doing so. And so the puzzle that got me going is why is it that we have these views but we have three policies in Washington that are exactly the opposite. The rich keep getting their taxes cut, the social programs keep getting slashed, and the wars keep going on, and even expanding, by the way. Because it's not just the announced wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, it's in Yemen, it's in Pakistan, it's in Somalia, it's in a spreading region of impoverished, hungry drylands that stretch from Africa across the Red Sea into the Arabian Peninsula and into Central Asia. 
And in my opinion, it's no accident why they're unstable. They're hungry. They're suffering declining precipitation because of climate change. They are therefore without direction, without economy, without hope. And for the amounts that we're putting in, it's unbelievable what we could actually do. Each soldier we station in Afghanistan for one year, each single soldier is a million dollars. Can you believe it? It's shocking. I tell you, for a million dollars, we can fix a village. But we're not fixing villages. We're sending soldiers. And it's a disgrace because it's being led by people who don't know what they're doing and are squandering lives and money as a result of it. And there's no end to it because for all the soldiers that we send, it's not building a bore well, it's not addressing the hunger, it's not building the clinics, it's not solving the problems because we're not even trying on that. In fact, our politicians protest, oh no, no nation building, that would be terrible. But what do they think is going to happen with impoverished, hungry, climate-affected regions where there are not livelihoods, infrastructure, schools, clinics, energy supplies, and so forth? And that's why we fall more deeply into this trap where we could actually do something at a tiny fraction of the cost if people in charge knew what they were doing. So why is it that we're trapped this way? What is the break? Why is it that uh, unpopular policies to bust unions, attack teachers, carry the day? Because that's not what the American people want. It's not what they believe in. And for that, I tried to understand in the book, The Price of Civilization, what are the roots of these problems? And I had to go back and back and back because one could start in 2008, but that's pure symptom, the financial collapse. The criminality was already underway, the illegality, the financial fraud, the mismanagement, the bad choices of the Fed. I could go back to 2000, 2001, to my least favorite administration, and I still don't know whether the Bush Jr. administration was the worst in American history or only the second worst after James Buchanan because I haven't done a sufficient study of the 1856 period. But it was miserable. But the fact of the matter is I'm not partisan in this because our problems predate George W. Bush Jr. When, after all, was the financial market deregulated? 1999 under President Clinton. That's when Glass-Steagall was uh, taken away. And who took it away? President Clinton's administration. That wasn't forced on him. That was Robert Rubin. Went from heading Goldman Sachs right into the White House, and then from the right White House right into the leadership of Citigroup, benefiting from this deregulation. Then he got paid $126 million. And then when Citigroup went belly up and said that they needed to be rescued, he said, I had nothing to do with that. I was just in the corner office. That $126 million was just a thank you note. Unbelievable. And by the way, how weird it is that the moment that Lehman 
went bankrupt in September 2008 and Senator Obama was running for president, the next day, essentially, who did he show up with in the press conference? Robert Rubin. Because that's continuity, that's not change we can believe in. But that's how our politics works. This is not about Democrats and Republicans, though I do choose between the two. I view the Republicans as extremists on the right, and I view the Democrats as center-right. And I view neither party as reflecting the mainstream center values of our country. So I had to take the story back through the Clinton years, through what was called welfare reform, which really meant pushing poor women out on the street. Back 1992, still back, still back. And basically, ladies and gentlemen, in just a two-minute pressee, already in the 1970s, America was feeling the first wedge of globalization. We were being shaken. We were facing new kinds of competition. We were facing instability in primary commodities markets, soaring oil and food prices. We needed a diagnosis that said, we're in a new era. We're in a global era. We might have noticed, if we were watching carefully, that China was opening up to trade, and that was going to have profound implications for our industry. Millions of jobs going from here to China, especially the labor-intensive, jobs that could be carried out by low-wage workers in China that meant that high school degree grads in this country would have a hard time finding that middle-class path again. We might have noticed all of that, but we had bad luck because Ronald Reagan became president, and on January 20th, 1981, he made a fateful diagnosis himself. He said the solution to our that government is not the solution to our problems, government is the problem. I would only say that people that believe that should not be president. <laughs> he started this new era. The new era is one marked by tax cuts for the rich, deregulation, impunity of behavior, and slashing programs for the middle class and poor. And we're stuck in so many areas. Our infrastructure's not rebuilt. We have a 50-year-old highway system. We are falling farther and farther behind other countries in the proportion of young people completing a four-year college education. We have a very uh, remarkable solution to climate change, and that is to deny it. <laughs> completely, completely driven by corporate propaganda. Not by scientific doubts, but by corporate propaganda of the likes of David Koch and Rupert Murdoch, and ExxonMobil. And if you know this uh, sequence, and it's been studied extensively, you know that this is big oil money out to confuse the American people and stop solutions. We've been this way for 30 years. Unfortunately, both political parties 
have been feeding at the trough. I say in the book that it seems sometimes that the only difference between the two parties is that big oil owns the Republicans and Wall Street owns the Democrats. It's just as close as that. Bill Clinton's innovation was to bring the Democratic Party and Wall Street together. And we ended up with two big bubbles, one in 2001 collapsing and the other in 2008 collapsing since that fateful union of money and power. And that's why we're stuck right now, because even President Obama, who said he was running on change, has governed on continuity. Because while he did have a grassroots support, he also, on the side, had the bundlers and had the financial support and brought in Wall Street into the White House and teamed up with the health insurance industry so we wouldn't have a single-payer option and kept the wars going and basically uh, failed in straight talk about how to break through the propaganda of big oil. I don't blame him for all of this. These are tough opponents. But he's played the insider game. And you can't win with the insider game in this country. Because the insiders have big money, and they know what they want, and they're out to get it. And they're going to break every union in the way. And they're going to denigrate government. They're going to denigrate the teachers. They're going to denigrate state workers. And we're on a downward spiral right now without the skills, the infrastructure, the technology to be competitive. And we've lost 9 million jobs in manufacturing, but the manufacturing sector is telling us with skilled workers we could hire more, but we don't have them. So they go for the H-1B visas rather than American kids who can't even afford to get through college right now because the Pell Grants are being peeled away. So the final point I make in this book is that first we got to get our heads on straight and understand where the breakdowns are. And it is around money in politics. It's not paralysis between the left and the right. We don't have a left. We don't even have a center. We've got a right and a right. And it's because that's where the big money is. We have to understand, every time you turn around, another candidate's funded by David Koch. Last weekend, we found it was Herman Cain, who's been on the Coke payroll and support for several years. This is how it's working. If it's not Scott Walker, if it's not Herman Cain, it's the next one, the next one, the next one. Because when you have $50 billion between two brothers, it can go quite a ways. And it can be hidden in one shell organization after another. So you have to do deep archaeology to find out where that money is. And then we have a Supreme Court which can't tell the difference between anonymous corporate money and free speech. So just to wrap up, it's not, it's not so complicated what needs to be done. First, our kids are really onto something. And they're absolutely right to be calling out Wall Street and calling out the top 1%. And they're right to be representing the 99%. Because, <laughs> because the top 1% has run away with the prize. 
And a lot of that financial prize is parked in the Cayman Islands and Bermuda and other tax havens right now. And that's why our corporations with their high profits are paying the lowest corporate taxes in modern history as a share of national income. Because the politicians and the corporations have worked together to make sure you can transfer price your profits to the Caymans and then enjoy them at zero tax rates. And that's how our system is gamed right now. And I could go chapter and verse with you. And at this pulpit, I feel like doing that, actually. Uh, <laughs> but this is a game that needs to be fixed. So our kids are right. We need to bring the top 1% back under control. That's what FDR knew. That's what his distant cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, knew before him. We need to get the wealth under control so it doesn't own our government. We need to get the corruption and the lawlessness under control with accountability. CEOs who cheated this country and the world need to go because we can't have a functioning democracy this way and we can't prosper with the corporatocracy that we have right now. If we're gonna be run by corporations, we're not gonna be meeting our needs, and especially we're not going to be need meeting our children's needs. It is a shame to talk about cutting government further. We're already at the bone. We're already not meeting our needs in training, in education, in early childhood development, in infrastructure, in energy systems, in environmental protection. We're already at the bone, ladies and gentlemen, and they want to slice it more. We need to tax at the top so we can pay for a civilization again. <laughs> Finally, let me end where I began, uh, right here in Minneapolis. People are so worried, many are cynical, Many are just despairing. They think we can't turn this around. But our country has a history of rallying. Our politics moves in long waves. We've had 30 years of greed initiated by the forces that came to power with Ronald Reagan. We have undermined our capacity to act in a shared way through government. But we've been there before and we've turned it around before. And one of the greatest such turnarounds was in this region a hundred years ago when the first Gilded Age was followed by the Progressive Era. And I count on this region helping to lead a return to American democracy in our time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeffrey Sachs. I would note for the radio audience, there's just been a standing ovation here at Westminster. 
You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Learn more about us online at westminsterforum.org, and you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is economist Jeffrey Sachs and the author of the book, The Price of Civilization, Reawakening American Virtue and Prosperity. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I invite you to join us at Westminster for our next forum on Tuesday evening, November 8th at 7 p.m., when Tom Brokaw will be our guest speaker. Dr. Sachs, if you would now return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. Thank you very much. You, you, clearly, you clearly are not enamored of our current two parties. Uh, would, you, would you advocate for a vigorous third party to enter into the political participation of this nation? I basically am advocating for a new approach of candidates uh, running for public office, and it could be uh, insurgents within the parties or it could be a third party. And that is that I want to see candidates take up the challenge of running for office without taking corporate contributions. And indeed, and indeed, without taking any large contributions whatsoever. My proposal is the following, that we mobilize a slate of candidates who make a pledge. I would call it the 99% or the $99 pledge. And that is no contribution of more than $99. And, and if a million people respond for a presidential candidate, that's $99 million, and that's enough for the gas money. Uh, and I would say that in our current environment and with our current technology, the idea that you need expensive, paid, commercial television campaigns is passe. That's the test I would like to make. And I believe that a well-made YouTube video can be worth more than $10 million of campaign uh, advertising, and that this is the way that the young people are going to remake our politics. They don't even watch very much TV anymore. The shows they like, they stream on their computer anyway or on their phones or whatever other appliance they happen to be holding. Uh, and uh, I think that we have a new approach that I believe needs to be tested. So I'm hoping for some candidates that will come forward and say no PACs, no super PACs, no bundlers, no millionaires, no billionaires, no $35,800 a plate dinners, which are the main suppers of President Obama these days. We don't need any of that. But I would accept uh, they will say $99, thank you, so I can uh, cover the gas uh, and uh, help to get the word out. My view is that Americans are so disgusted of this big money and the spin that this will be the most powerful way forward, the best route to reelection, uh, by the way, of President Obama. If he stood up tomorrow and said, you know, I've been on the wrong path. I'm sending David Plouffe home to Chicago, which I would dearly like. Uh, I'm glad he sent Rahm home. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, I think that uh, if he said, you know, I've been on the wrong track, I pledge change, but there hasn't been enough change. I recognize that I've been surrounded by too many millionaires and billionaires uh, and too many fundraising dinners. I have enough uh, free media, thank you. I don't actually need a billion dollars war chest. I'm not taking any more of this. Uh, I call on all of us to cease and desist. Even if they don't, I don't think it would matter. I think we would regain our hope uh, and confidence in President Obama that many of us had and many of us uh, have found stretched in recent years. The people want to know, have you had an invitation to the White House for a steak dinner? <clears throat> I've been in the White House on many occasions, but not to a steak dinner. I think uh, Lloyd Blankfein took my seat. Uh, uh, but. Um, you know, I've had the chance to meet uh, with the president and with his advisors. Uh, they've not agreed with my diagnosis. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I keep trying both inside and outside. Uh, I had been the first employer of many of uh, the president's <clears throat> top staff. I think I gave uh, Peter Orshag uh, and uh, Austin Goolsby among their first jobs. Uh, so uh, I was proud to see them uh, in office, but I was not happy with uh, what they did. Often they would tell me things in private that I wish they would say in public. I don't believe in a government where the knowing things are said in whispers uh, in private and only said clearly after you leave office. And that's what's happened with too many of these aides. Government is not a game. It's not a game. And yet it's treated that way. And that's why I really, really would like David Plouffe to go home. Because a president should not have a political advisor like that who's telling how to spin and so forth. I found in Plouffe's book, The Audacity to Win, one of the most uh, shocking little vignettes, of course, very minor. Uh, but to me, exemplifying what's wrong with our politics. At one point in the 2008 campaign, Oprah Winfrey, you'll recall, offered to do an event with President Obama. And Plouffe actually writes in the book, we ran the numbers to see whether that was okay. They focus grouped that. What kind of world is this? This is a world where people end up without values. They end up completely uh, beholden to tactics without vision. And we know what, ha what happens in a country without vision. And that, unfortunately, is what we are risking right now. Does capitalism still work? And are free markets the panacea to the economic ills of the world? This is really an important question. And it's important to define the terms. Capitalism generally means an economy that is organized substantially, I would say, around the profit motive. And I would say that capitalist economies have been the only economies that have worked well. But then there was a second term used, which is a mythology called the free market. There is no such thing as the free market except in a miserable first-year economics textbook. 
because markets can't be free and effective. And Adam Smith knew this back in 1776 when he wrote The Wealth of Nations. That's why he had book five of The Wealth of Nations that said government has major responsibility. And Adam Smith in his day pointed out public works. He pointed out education for the population as being vital. And our founding fathers knew that very well. Thomas Jefferson and others said, if our population is ignorant, we can't even have a functioning democracy. And so they were champions of public education, not for firing the, the teachers. And then we had Abraham Lincoln, who signed in 1862 the Morrill Act, creating the land-grant institutions. Great institutions that have played a pivotal role in America's development, but also in the world's development. Norman Borlaug and others, who were beneficiaries of the land-grant schools and then who helped to bring about the Green Revolution around the world. And this is the kind of thing that Ron Paul and these libertarians want to end. They want to bring us back to an age of ignorance or an age where only a small part of the population can get wisdom or an age where you have to beg the kings and queens to be the patrons of the arts and the sciences rather than society operating through democratic government. This is a shame and this is the big mistake. So a market economy, absolutely yes but a civilized market economy where government helps with productivity through training, through education, through infrastructure, through science, technology, through uh, all of the things which help productivity. A government that also ensures fairness so that people aren't so poor and destitute they have no way out. And a government that protects the natural environment, not despoils it as David Koch would do. Uh, and with this uh, terrible idea of this Keystone Pipeline to take the world's dirtiest fuel, the oil sands of Canada, to Coke's and others' refineries. What a miserable idea without any environmental... <laughs> without any environmental attention at all. But let's see where it will go. I hope that this White House, I desperately hope they wake up. Uh, I don't think they'd have the guts to turn it down. That's just not how they operate. Maybe they will postpone it long enough to, uh, to uh, somehow uh, maybe then win re-election, then, then stop it. But they're so afraid of the lobbies that this is our biggest problem, actually. So markets, capitalism, yes. Free markets, don't dream. It's, uh, it doesn't exist. It never existed. It should never be a phrase that we use, uh, and we should understand that the social market economy in Germany or the social democracies which balance environment, fairness, social justice, and market economy are the ways that we create the kind of society we want to live in. We have a number of questions that have been asked about the media, the role of the media in, in holding uh, politicians and corporations accountable, the role of the media in presenting certain ideas and not others. Can you comment on the role of media in today's economy and political environment? Well, the first thing to say is that a lot of the media are big business and uh, they propel their interests. Uh, and uh, I think the 
biggest damage in this country uh, in terms of the media are done by News Corporation, uh, Rupert Murdoch's empire, uh, which is uh, closer to Newspeak Corporation. Uh, it's uh, basically almost Orwellian in how it behaves. And in the UK, it is uh, engaged in a massive criminal, uh, it's been engaged in massive criminal activity, uh, which has uh, brought down senior police officials, ministers, uh, and, uh, or uh, senior uh, government officials, and, and uh, uh, editors, and so forth. And what we call our news received on Fox Cable News and in the Wall Street Journal editorial page is as far from reality as one can imagine. It's just peddling nonsense day in, day out, but it's influential. And one of the things that Murdoch has taken on, of course, is uh, this uh, phony proposition that climate science itself is the hoax. And uh, it's not surprising, perhaps, that he does it because he's greedy uh, and he teams up with the oil industry. But it's a bunch of lies on his side, and it's very damaging. And I've met many business people who read the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal and actually believe that because they don't have the chance to talk to climate scientists and they don't have a chance to know that this uh, risk that we're facing worldwide has been understood scientifically for more than a century. And actually, uh, the first uh, science of climate change started in the 1820s and 1840s. This is well-established, a deep scientific knowledge of how greenhouse gases work, and we have 50 years of understanding that we're on a steeply rising curve of greenhouse gases, especially with China's rise now to be the world's number one emitting country, and that we are on a collision course with nature of our only planet, and we are doing nothing for this because somehow this greed of this oil sector has dominated everything. So this is really what the media, uh, many of the media have been engaged in. And a lot of the mainstream media looks to the mainstream big corporations for their advertising, their support, and so on, so we don't get the messages out very clearly. Uh, and that's why many internet sites have been way ahead of the mainstream media, often a year or two or three years ahead of reality, because they're not corporate bought in the same way. You've been described as a clinical economist, and we've heard today a good dose of di diagnosis of the, the, the ills. Uh, what is your prescription for change and action other than Occupy Wall Street rallies? Well, as I've said, Occupy Wall Street is the beginning of a social awakening, and we should recall that we've had those before. They take years. The progressive era built from the populist movement, again, born here, basically, uh, and uh, into the 1890s, and then it took uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, and Woodrow Wilson to help bring uh, into reality many of the policies. Then uh, uh, Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover uh, brought uh, the economy down in a decade of speculation, and that was followed by the New Deal. Uh, and the New Deal and FDR, who I think was our greatest president in American history, uh, put in, in place a structure of fairness and regulation that lasted many decades, both Republican and Democrat. Uh, and it's important to remember that it was Richard Nixon, for example, who signed the Environmental Protection Agency law, 
Uh, and it was, uh, of course, uh, under Dwight Eisenhower, who the national highway system uh, and many of the other national leadership reforms. And so we used to have a bipartisan consensus on the mainstream idea of a mixed economy, and that was broken by Ronald Reagan. Now we have, unfortunately, a bipartisan consensus on tax cuts for the rich uh, and chasing the corporate lobbies. So it's going to take time. I view there being three things that need to be done. Occupy Wall Street is in the category of social awareness. Second is policy prescription. I hope my book adds uh, to that discussion. But we need to create a new platform, a new approach, a new idea that neither political party is offering. And then the third part is political power itself. Uh, and that's where we need candidates who will not only uh, run on a platform, but run without being s bought out or selling out to the corporate interests. Regarding the Nordic experience, to which you referred a couple of times in your remarks, Denmark has the highest taxes and the greatest happiness. Is this an anomaly? Can you explain it? <laughs> to be a Scandinavian politician is to promise that you will not cut taxes. <laughs> Honestly. Because uh, the charge is you'll cut taxes and take away the social supports and the decent pillars of society. And so the center, which would be far left for us, uh, not, not really far left, it would be left of center, their, their center, uh, says, uh, no, 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 we promise we're not touching the pillars of our social democracy. Uh, and the politics is a consensus around high taxes and efficient and effective government. Their governments work because there isn't cor the corruption that we have also. Their governments actually deliver services. They have a health system, which is much cheaper than ours, half the cost, and they have life expectancy two or three years longer than the United States. And they have a, they're able to deliver education services, health services, a cleaner environment, longer vacation time, maternity and paternity leave, by the way, guaranteed childcare for all children in preschool, decent daycare, early childhood development, and the public likes this. And I think Americans would like this also. I have several questions about American exceptionalism. For better or for worse, the world has changed. Does America have to be number one in the economy and military might in other ways in order to be content and fulfilled in its citizens' lives? America is number one only in military might right now because on all the other dimensions of economic performance, we're falling. Uh, and uh, even the World Economic Forum, which is generally has uh, metrics that are very kind to the U.S., has now now has the U.S. slipping to fifth in competitiveness, but a lot of other indicators are much, much tougher. If you look at how we compare in what's called the PISA scores, which is the International Comparisons of Education, we're between 20 and 35 uh, in the categories of reading, uh, science, and math. Uh, in life expectancy, we have fallen way down. In poverty, we're number one. In social mobility, we're far down. And the list of things where the U.S. is already fading is unfortunately very, very long. 
when I point this out, people like uh, Congressman Paul Ryan, who uh, wrote the Wall Street Journal's uh, review of my book, and by the way, he didn't like it very much, but, <laughs> but we're even, because I don't like him very much in his politics. He's just another hack paid for by David Koch. Uh, and, uh, and, and but he had the audacity to call this, uh, my views, un-American, because I used the dirty word Europe, uh, which, uh, and he deliberately misread what I said as well, because I was talking about, and am talking about, Northern Europe and the kind of system that it's put in place. Uh, and so I think that uh, th this is, uh, a case where we can learn, and one of the things I do recommend essentially in, in the book is a national report card where we have to benchmark ourselves and we look in the mirror, and not just in the mirror actually, we look abroad I should say, uh, and uh, understand that different countries have different ways of doing things and we can learn from those ways. Uh, so the exceptionalism right now is our self-regard of our politicians, they're preening, their lack of seriousness, their being on the take, and in my view, their unwillingness to take lessons from successes abroad. Thank you, Jeffrey Sachs. Thank you. Thank you very much.